Good morning, my name is Sharon Townsend, and a couple ways that I'm connected um, is in women's Bible study and in our small group. This morning I am reading Revelation 5, verses 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard about the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. My name is Zach Thompson. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary Bible Church, and we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation. And from the very beginning, we've said that this entire book well, is a revelation. It is showing us, it is revealing Jesus to us, but it does so in a way that tends to pull back the curtains on this world and what we fill our time with to show us what is actually happening, what Jesus is actually doing. And so uh, the, the idea is that it's giving us a picture of, of who God is and what he's doing while it's so easy for us to be consumed by other things. And this is something that's done for the seven churches that this book was originally written to. It pulls back the curtains uh, despite them going through persecution, despite them seeing how hard it is to follow Jesus. It shows who Jesus is. It reminds them of what Jesus has done. And for us as well, we who read this book later on, it, it pulls back the curtains on us that while it's so easy for us to be consumed by what there is to find in this life, to, to fill our time with the desires that we can find in this world, it pulls back the curtains to show that this Jesus is worthy and that he is working even now. 
And we got quite a big taste of that last week as we were in Revelation chapter four. This comes right on the heels of these seven letters written to these seven churches. And and maybe you were feeling this way too. As you read all seven of them in a row, it it starts, maybe maybe you're better than I am and so you don't ask this question, but it, it starts to generate this question of, man, is this God really worth it? As you read through all seven of these letters, it's, it, there's so much scathing indictments about these churches. And, and we talked about how these letters work for all churches. So we were feeling the critique as well to, to not compromise, to not put your cares in other things, to remain faithful at all time, to, to be rooted in truth, to love others, but you better not err on one side more than the other on that one. And even those churches who do well, we are told that your faithfulness will lead to you facing more persecution and difficulty. It starts to generate these questions of, is this God really worth it? Following him is so hard that even if we are doing well, that things might still be difficult for us. Well, this is where I'm so grateful that we have chapter four, right after these letters to these churches, because we are given a picture of God. The curtains are pulled back to reveal a God who is worthy. This God who's so majestic, so pure and massive and holy that angels are singing out praises. There's thunder and lightning. It's, it's this incredible scene that's given. Here he is on the other side of the sea of crystal. There's gemstones all around. It is a picture of a God who is worthy who's worth all of this. But there starts to still be a little bit of a question there. I I like the point that, that Pastor Perry made last week while he was here, that when we are faced with majesty, when we see something majestic, that doesn't tend to inspire us to run closer towards it. We tend to recoil. We, we tend to pull back. We tend to tremble. And so we have this picture of a God who's absolutely worthy, but he sure seems unapproachable. He's there on the other side of the sea of crystal. He, there's, there's thunder and lightning going off. He's so different. He's so pure. He's so holy. It seems like we can't draw near to him. So while we have the, the answer to the question, is this God worth it with a resounding, yes, he is, it sure starts to feel, but we can't know him. We can't be known by him. He's just too unapproachable. And this is why we read chapter five alongside chapter four, because in Revelation chapter five, not only do we see more reason why God is worthy, why he's worth all of this, not only do we see more reasons why he is better than anything else we might fill our lives with, but we see just how he is made approachable, how we are able to know and be known by him. We're gonna spend our time in Revelation chapter five centered on uh, three words that all start with the letter W. And uh, that really frustrates me because I quite dislike alliteration. Uh, so often it's, it's really forced, it doesn't really work, but here all three of these words are actually in the text and they structure the, the whole chapter. So, I mean, what else could I do? So three words that start with W and they are weep, worthy, and worship. We're gonna center our time around the words weep, worthy and worship. That is what Revelation chapter five is pointing us to. So we'll start with the first one, why we weep. Revelation starts by giving us a picture as to why it is that we weep. And this comes from the very beginning of the chapter. Revelation chapter five, starting in verse one, it says, and then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So we're still in that throne room scene of of, uh, chapter four, but now the focus is moving from the one on the throne to the scroll that is in his right hand. Now, a a scroll was a very common uh, theme throughout the Old Testament. We just don't have the time to to go through what that theme means, so look it up. Uh, But there's a a couple details that that I wanna focus our time on about the scroll. First, it says it's written on both sides. It's written within and, and on the back. So it's written on both sides of it. Now, the way, it's probably papyrus, but even if it was leather, whatever the writing material was, the way it was made is it would be really smooth on one side, really easy to ride on on one side, but the back would be like really coarse and textured, and so it's difficult to to write on the other side. And so why would it be written on both sides when it's really difficult to do it on, on one of the sides? Well, the only reason why you would do that is to keep all of the material together to keep all of what's needed on a topic all in one concealed scroll, that there's nothing to be added to it, nothing to be missing. This was especially important. Scrolls would be used for someone's last will and testament at the time. Uh, Imagine you're at the reading of someone's will and it says, and to my beloved relative who I so cherish, they're such a friend to me all throughout my entire life, I I leave and then there's silence and rustling of paper, and you're like, oh no, what's going on? And and then the person says, well, we actually, we're missing the last page, so that's gonna conclude the reading of the will today. Isn't that terrible? Well, that would be such an awful thing to do. And so a scroll would be written on both sides to say, it is all one material. There's nothing to be added, there's nothing missing, there's nothing else beyond what's written here. And so what Revelation chapter five is saying is that there's this scroll in God's hand, and in that scroll, there's, there's nothing missing from it, nothing to be added. It contains all there is to say on one topic. And as we read through the rest of the book of Revelation, we see what that scroll contains. That it actually contains all of God's plans and purposes for blessing, restoration, and judgment. I mean, chapter six, the scroll starts to be open and it's showing God's plan to bring restoration and judgment to the world and to all people. And so it's written on both sides. It's saying that there's nothing missing. There's nothing that could be added later. There's no part that's forgotten about. There's nothing that's that's absent from what's inside the scroll. It is all of God's plan for restoration, judgment, and blessing. Well, the other detail that's given to us is that it's sealed with seven seals. So seals, I mean, a really basic function that they did. Scrolls can easily become unraveled, so it stopped that from happening. But the other reason why it's significant that the the seals are mentioned is that when a scroll is unsealed, well, that is when what it's it's saying to do is enacted. The other side of it, it, when when a scroll uh, is is, uh, sealed, it hasn't yet put into place what the contents say. So again, think about this like a a last will and testament. Uh, Someone could write years in advance that they're leaving something for you, but it's not yours yet, right? Not until the seals are broken, the scroll is unrolled, and that it's bread. 
So when it's all sealed up, it means that it hasn't yet been enacted. All right, so we got those two details, right? What, written on both sides, what the seals mean. So what this is saying then, what the question that this mighty angel asks when he says, who is worthy to open the scroll, uh, to break the seals and to read it? What that question is saying then, who is able to enact God's plans and purposes for restoration, judgment, and blessing? Who is able to put these in place, to start them going so that there's no part missing, nothing to be added later, who is able to execute God's plan? Essentially, it's who is able to go to this inaccessible God and bring about all of his plans? And the question is answered with silence. This is verse three. It says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, this is John saying about himself, I wept loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one is worthy to open the scroll, to bridge that gap, to open it up, to enact God's plans. This is what uh, D.A. Carson said on this topic. He said, to get to this God to break the seals of the scroll that lies in the right hand of his power. You have to cross the sea of glass. You have to get through these serrated ranges of angels who are already terrifying in themselves to get through a thunderstorm, then approach this God whom even the angels are hiding their faces from and take something from his right hand and then split open the seals. You can't approach this God like that. He's not a toy. He's not a souped up human being. He is a terrifying, awesome God. So the challenge is, who is rank so exalted, attributes so marvelous, life so perfect and holy as to approach the throne of God, take the scroll, break the seals, open it, and bring to pass God's promises for redemption and blessing? Who can do that? Well, it's silent. No one steps forward. No one is worthy. So John begins to weep. Now, I read some people who, who actually like, mocked John for weeping in this time. Like, how can you be crying right now? Look at this incredible vision that you're being given. How, how, how can you be weeping? You know what Jesus has promised you, so suck it up. Things are going to be fine. But I think this is such an uncharitable reading of the text. And it ignores the place that we often find ourselves in a similar spot of John in this passage. He sees this scroll containing all of God's plans for, for justice and restoration and, and the, the punishment of sin and, and bringing about uh, his glory and, and honor. He sees all of that in the scroll and now he's told, but no one can open it. He, he just got done writing letters to these seven churches and each one of these letters say, here is promises for you. If you persevere, if you conquer, here is what will happen for you. And now it's looking like those promises won't come true. He's seeing right here the scroll which will bring about God's plan and, and, and all source of hope is evaporating in front of his eyes. It starts to come with this question of, was it all just too good to be true? Don't we find ourselves asking similar questions to that? Don't we have moments in our life where we are trying to figure out, is God working? When will he do it? I mean, we talked about this vision that was given of God, this incredible, powerful, majestic God, albeit unapproachable. And it, and it sure seems like there's a bit of a disconnect here. It's like, yes, God is this powerful, but will he work on behalf of his people? 
God is incredibly just and pure, but will he make him, uh, his followers pure as well? God has all justice and righteousness in him, but will he right, right the wrongs of this world? I mean, don't, don't we have times where we are asking questions like that? Spending days, weeks, entire seasons of our life looking for some sort of sign that God will work, looking for some sort of sign that he will keep his promises. And yet when we see the pain that's in this world, as we're going through hard times, it becomes all the more difficult to hold on to his promises, to believe that they will come true. Don't we too ask the question, was it all just too good to be true? I mean, maybe, maybe we don't ask that. Maybe we're spared from feeling that. Maybe, maybe we aren't like the people uh, all throughout the Bible who cry out the same cry, how long, O Lord? When will you work? When will you keep your promises? Maybe, maybe we've been spared from ever crying out that way. Maybe, maybe we've been spared from seeing the suffering in this world and, and not being torn up inside from it. Maybe we, we're the only ones who, who look at, at the, the devastation that takes lives and livelihood and not be moved, or, or the sickness that ravages people around us, or to look at someone that we so desperately love and see them dying and not cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is wrong. God, can you work? Can you do something? Maybe we're the only ones who look at the persecuted church around the world and not be moved by them. Or, or to see people who have had, had, had everything taken from them except for Jesus and not cry out for God's protection. Maybe we're the only ones who see people that we love not love Jesus and be heartbroken by it. Don't we understand John weeping in this time? This is God's plan for restoration, his blessings poured out, making all things right. And there's no one who can open the scroll? No one worthy to make this happen? No one who can actually make this occur? What other response is there but to weep in a time like that? I mean, tears are a protest against things going the way that they're not supposed to go. And it sure seems like there's quite a few things that we protest against. So what a response is there when we see the pain and the hurt and the destruction and the despair that is to be found in this world? What other response is there but weeping? And yet the encouragement to John and to all those who are blessed by the reading of his words, the encouragement that said to him is weep no more. Weep no more. For behold, the line of Judah, prophesied back in Genesis chapter 49. Behold, the root of Jesse, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11. Both promises about the coming Messiah, this one who will come and make things right, who will fight for his people, who will defend them, this conquering hero. Behold, this one who is coming. He is worthy to open the scroll. So he hears of this powerful figure, this one who is promised, this one who is finally worthy, and he turns to look. He's like, who is this conquering hero? Who is this victorious one? And he turns and sees a lamb that looks like it was slain, that looks like it was sacrificed. Do you see what's happening here? He hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb. He hears about something powerful, but he turns and sees what we might call weakness. He hears about this conquering hero, but what he sees is how that conquering was made possible. 
Because it's not as though there's two figures here. It's one and the same. And what he sees is, is how this conquering is possible, how this victory is won by this incredible figure. It was this conquering that comes from sacrifice, victory that was ensured in a time that looked like defeat. He sees this lamb who goes to the throne, the only one who's worthy. He sees this lamb who receives receives worship that only God is supposed to receive. So the passage is quite clearly identifying this lamb as God. It tells us that he has seven horns. Horns was this image from the Old Testament that talks about someone's power and rule. So they have perfect kingly power. He has seven eyes, so perfect awareness, vision, understanding of what's going on. See, this is the one who was once before called the Lamb of God. This is Jesus, that he is the one who's worthy. And all throughout this chapter, we're given reasons to see why Jesus is worthy. And that's our second W word, worthy. All throughout this chapter, we're given reasons as to why Jesus is worthy, why he is able to make this unapproachable God approachable, why he is able to open the scroll, to enact God's plans for, uh, and purposes for, for restoration and, and perfection and holiness and goodness, why it is that he and he alone is worthy. Look at Revelation Chapter 5, starting in verse 9, as we see how this unapproachable God is made approachable. Turn too many pages. Verse 9 says, And they sang, all these figures in this heavenly sing, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is it that he's worthy? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Why is it that he's worthy? For from every tribe and language and people and nation. Why is it that he's worthy? For you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we see in just these two verses, three reasons why Jesus is worthy, how it is that he makes this unapproachable God approachable. And first and foremost, he makes this unapproachable God approachable by his blood, It says, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people back for God. That that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because he has taken this judgment that we have earned for our sins, he has taken that and removed it so that we could be rescued from them. Rescued and reconciled to this God, this majestic God that we no longer need to recoil away from him. We no no longer need to tremble at the sight of such majesty, but we can know and be known by this God because we have been rescued by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of this Jesus. So much of the book of Revelation, it contains these, these judgments, this wrath being poured out. It shows us how seriously God takes sin, those who rebel against him. But before we get to any bit of that, before we look at any sort of punishment like that, we are told that this tremendous cost of rebellion, this cost for sin of going against God is not a cost that we have to pay. It has been paid in full by the blood of the lamb. That before we talk about any judgments, we are shown the rescue from judgment in this very passage. And we we see as well that Jesus is worthy, not not for something that's added later on. We aren't sitting around waiting, ah, when is the day Jesus is going to be worthy? 
His worthiness is based on something that's already been accomplished, his death and resurrection. So it's not something that we contribute to. It's not something that we can make ourselves worthy to approach God. He is already worthy, completely worthy to do this. And yet we are the beneficiaries of the blessings of his worthiness. And it makes me think of what we read about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, uh, for our sake, for all of humanity's sake, those who trust in him, God made Jesus. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That God made, made a Jesus as this one who had never done anything wrong to be the substitute for us, to be counted as our sacrifice, our slain lamb for the covering of sins. And what do we get in return? so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the good news that we say saves us, that Jesus had done nothing wrong, and yet by his death, we are saved. By his death, we are rescued. By his death, we have all the blessings and benefits as if we had done nothing wrong like Jesus had. That the unapproachable God has now been made approachable because the lamb is slain. The scroll can be opened because one has been found who's worthy to do so. This Jesus who is faithful, faithful even unto death. There's reason to hold on to. There's, there's trust that we can have in this God no matter what is going on around us because Jesus is worthy, already worthy, that he has rescued us by his blood. Now, now people divide over these two chapters there's the question of when is Revelation chapters four and five taking place? Is it something that's already happened in the past? Is it going on right now? Is it something that we're waiting for in the future? You know, maybe. But I think the reason that we have for celebrating is something that we absolutely can receive now. That as we're saying, the reason Jesus is worthy is because of something that's already occurred. The reason why Jesus is worthy of so much praise, why this God has been made accessible, why we can find salvation by his blood, that's not something that we're waiting for to happen. When is the day he's finally worthy? He already is. It's rooted in his death and resurrection. That's what makes him worthy. So whether we say this is an event going on in the future or wherever it is, there is cause to celebrate now because the lamb has been slain. One is worthy to open the scroll. This unaccessible God has been made accessible by his followers. Second reason why Jesus is worthy, why this unaccessible God has been made accessible. The unapproachable God has been made approachable by all. This is what we read in Chapter nine, it says that uh, the people who are ransomed come from every tribe and language and people and nation. The implication of that is that if we divide people up by worth for anything whatsoever, not only do we deny how God has made people, but we also deny the work that God will do to restore all things. The implication of this is that if we aren't telling people about Jesus now, we are not participating in the joy that is to come as we rejoice with people in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I get that that's two negative things to, to put it this way, that, to say uh, that we, we uh, aren't looking forward to the new heavens and new earth if we aren't inviting people to join us in singing to Jesus now, that uh, we can't say we love God if we think that we're better than other people for any reason whatsoever. But there is a positive that comes from this, and I think a comfort as well. Because what we see here as this praise is poured out by all of these people, it's a reminder 
that we, it's a reminder to the seven churches, but it's a reminder to all churches that it's so easy for us to feel overwhelmed, to feel helpless in, in light of people around us who are so consumed by the culture at large. It's so easy to feel small and insignificant. Like, can we really make a difference? Can we really do anything? And yet the comfort here is that people are joined together in the worship of Jesus. Not just, not just people around us in a room, but we are joined with Christians throughout history in the praise of Jesus. One of the commentators I read put it this way. He says, those who worship Jesus are part of a vast multitude that we need to get this image of this multitude in our minds because one way to deal with being sojourners, one way to deal with being people in this world but with their eyes to heaven, one way to deal with, with looking to Jesus for all things when it's so hard to do so, when following him is difficult, when other desires come into place, one way to do that is for us to know where home is. And home for us means joining in that multitude praising Jesus. I mean, think about what that means for our singing. That's not us coming together say, do I like that song? Do I not like that song? I would have done this thing differently. It's not us coming together as individuals, lifting up our individual praises to God. But we are part of a vast multitude, not just being lifted up and, and carried along in worship by those in this room around us, but we are joined throughout history to all who praise his name. That when we worship, it's not one voice, but we are connected to a vast multitude. And think about what a vast multitude can do. Third reason why Jesus is worthy is that this unapproachable God has been made approachable for him. And, and what I mean by that is uh, to be included in the work that God is doing. Verse 10 tells us that Jesus has rescued them by his blood. Those of people from all tribe, nation, tongue, peoples to be made kings and priests, to be an extension of the work that God is doing. See all throughout this chapter why Jesus is worthy, which gets us to the response. As we see why we weep, as we see why Jesus is worthy, the chapter ends with the only possible response that there is to Jesus being this worthy. As we see all throughout this chapter as to why we worship that written in the very words is the, the response, the only possible response to a Jesus who's as worthy as this, which is to worship. Then one who is found who's worthy to open the scroll, the picture that we're given is all of heaven erupts in song. Verse eight tells us that uh, all of these figures had a harp that they began to play. And I know that there's a perception of what heaven looks like. It's, you know, floating around, you wear some sort of oversized gown and you play a harp. But that picture it totally misunderstands the, the image that's being used here. Because Psalm 137 was written at a time in Israel's history that was incredibly dire. They were being taken into exile. And a psalm was written to talk about this time. This is what it says. It says, by the waters of Babylon, where we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem, when we remembered what it was like to be home, well, on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Another word for that is harp. We hung up our harps. We didn't need them anymore. 
For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing one of your happy songs. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So what is Revelation 5 saying? It's saying, remember back when God's people were going into exile, you hung up your harps, you didn't need them anymore. Things were terrible. There was no room for happy songs. But Revelation 5 is saying, get those instruments. Because now is the time of joyous, raucous celebration. See, the point is not on literal harps or not literal hearts. It is saying, grab the instrument that is reserved just for happy music. What is the instrument that makes you happiest? What is the instrument that you think of uh, that, that just is associated with really joyful music? I, I think we could all probably agree that, that it's the mouth harp, right? And so what the passage is saying is grab your mouth harps. Now is the time for joyous, raucous celebration. It goes on to say that they are singing a new song. In the Old Testament, a new song was reserved for after victory in war. So what it's saying is that our weeping in this world, our pain that we go through, our despair, our crying out to God has been replaced with joyous, victorious music. Praise for this God. And that's what we see in Revelation 5.13. It says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Anyone missed out in that one? Or is that a pretty thorough description of everything was saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. See, this is how the curtain is pulled back on all those times we cry out, how long, O Lord? This is how every Christian now lives in a world full of of distractions and competing desires. This is how tears are replaced with song. See, the only consolation for the weary and the lost and the broken and the discontented is the same charge that's given to John here. Weep no more, for behold, the line of Judah the root of Jesse, this one who is worthy, this one who can conquer, he is able to open the scroll. And we respond in the same way this passage does, by saying blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever, and we will do that forever and ever, but it's something that we can participate in now. So grab your mouth harps, It's the time for joyous, victorious celebration. For here is the line of Judah, the Lamb of God, who is slain, who has rescued you by his blood. We have an opportunity to to reflect, to look at this Jesus 